Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone. I'm Michael McCarthy, and I'm very excited to introduce our next guest today, Nance Lucas, who's the Executive Director of Wellbeing at George Mason University. Welcome, Nance. Great to be here with you, Michael. Let's just jump right in. What was the motivation to create the Center for the Advancement of Wellbeing? Well, it was... um... You know, quite the story. We have a, a colleague at the uh, university at the time, the late Don Delasky and his wife Nancy were really interested in finding a way to provide educational opportunities for young people, namely college students, to explore at a deeper level meaning and purpose in their lives while they were in college. And They lived near the university. They were quite involved in other areas of George Mason. And so they approached uh, our president at the time, uh, the late Alan Merton, and asked if there would be a way in which to stand up some programs and courses uh, in the area of meaning and purpose. Um, So to make a very long story short, uh, we gave them a proposal to make their dream come true to not only impact young people at Mason, but around the world. Uh, And so they provided a private gift uh, to launch the center in 2009. And so that's the story of how we uh, got our flight path. So that that is, um, well, congratulations on that. Um, I, uh, I work at a university and I've also worked in the field of development for a long time. So I know how uh, important those relationships are and, and what a difference they can make. Um, so my, my follow-up question is that when it comes to so many different competing priorities for higher education today, um, First of all, how were you able to convince stakeholders and, uh, you know, the administrators of George Mason to really take well-being as a priority and to really be able to put the the resources uh, behind the center to make it something that will be have a lot of impact, not just for your immediate community, but as you said, around the world? Sure. Well, you know, when we originally started the center, it was really, uh, and this is true today, designed to be an interdisciplinary Center. And it was um, started, the, the original name of the center was the Center for Consciousness and Transformation. Uh, and so when we were exploring the idea with the donors and the university leadership, uh, I held um, forums for faculty of all fields and departments to come and uh, explore whether this would be a viable entity at Mason. And if so, would they like to be connected and how would they connect their scholarly work and teaching and so forth? Well, uh, the floodgates were opened and I was really quite frankly shocked at the number of faculty who came to uh, these open forums. I think we captured about 76 uh, faculty in two different meetings. And uh, so there was quite a lot of interest 
even when we were kind of more narrowly focused on consciousness and transformation. And so the uh, so the university leadership, um, the provost, the president, the dean, all agreed that okay, this can be uh, successful at Mason and be you know supported by a number of faculty. And so uh, that's how we got the original support. It was very much grassroots, and we built the center in that way. Uh, and in the earlier days, and you know, we provided uh, many research grants for faculty at Mason, which we still do, uh, curriculum transformation projects. Uh, and this all came um, about through the faculty uh, and then also the staff who are very supportive in providing co-curricular activities for our students. So, for example, the very first co-curricular activity was a uh, living learning community in a residence hall called Mindful Living, which was right out the gate, very popular with students, but probably more popular with parents who wanted their students you know, in this particular residence hall. Um, and then kind of going uh, just a few years ahead in our history, we over time, we started to see that it was um, getting difficult and challenging to describe the work of transformation uh, and consciousness to even within areas of the university, but certainly external audiences. And those external audiences were important to us as well. So um, we looked around at the, um, the strengths uh, among our faculty at Mason and also at the time within the center. And we decided to um, focus in on the science and application of well being. Uh, we also included leadership in there because of uh, a number of our colleagues at Mason um, are professors of leadership studies, including me. And so we brought in those two areas. So in 2013, we renamed the Center to the Center for the Advancement of Well-Being with our mission uh, serving as a catalyst for human well-being. And we take that word catalyst to heart. Um, mm -hmm. So we don't want to own a hundred programs at George Mason University. We want well-being to live in the DNA of this institution. So uh, we serve as a resource, um, maybe an inspiration um, to various departments and, and units across the university as they design um, programs for faculty, students, and staff connected to the science and practice of well-being. So during that same time, uh, we uh, decided that we were going to take uh, many of our resources, human and financial, and invest them in George Mason University. So we, we turned Mason's backyard uh, into the study and practice of well-being. It was a laboratory for the study and practice of well-being. And so um, we just boldly anointed a group of 26 students, faculty, staff, university leaders to join something that we called at the time the Wellbeing University Learning Community. And um, everyone said yes. So we said, what can we do to design a blueprint uh, for well-being at Mason? And, and these were faculty, staff, university leaders, students from all over the, the institution. And they were quite passionate and excited about being pioneers 
uh, in this area. And at the same time, we uh, Mason um, had a new president who came in and he was designing uh, a 10 year strategic plan. And he invited, uh, he learned about our well-being university uh, learning community and he invited our group to submit a goal statement for the plan, which we did. And uh, so we are um, one of 12 strategic initiatives in Mason's 10 year plan. And that um, strategic goal is for Mason to evolve as a model well-being university. It's goal number seven in our existing plan. And so what I think is important about that story uh, is that at Mason, we started really with the grassroots um, approach to well-being, uh, really making the tent as big as possible for everyone to participate, whether they were designing uh, initiatives or they were participating as learners. Uh, and then eventually we got top-down support. And context, I, I think, really matters in this work, especially at universities. Um, and I think that's something that we did well early on uh, in the development of our center. That's amazing, Nance. It's so cool to hear about the funding part and how you really work to transform this into something really meaningful. And I love that the approach you're taking just feels like it's so much more about transformation than transaction, right? Because it feels like a lot of well-being programs are very transactional in nature. And so I love the way you just described that. Do you think you could share maybe a couple more examples? I love the residence hall example, um, but maybe a couple more examples of how you've tried to make well-being be part of the DNA um, of the campus. Like what are some other examples? And, and also I'd love to hear maybe some things, some ways that it's really had an impact. Great, sure. Um, you know, we decided you know, early on that we wanted to um, make sure that we had activities that really focused on you know, the science of well-being and, and research and so forth. We really wanted to focus on um, curric the curriculum so that it would live um, in various academic departments. Um, and then also, you know, focusing in on the co-curriculum programs. And so some of those examples of programs uh, include, so we have a minor for mu uh, music for well-being in our School of Music that is open to all undergraduate uh, majors. And that lives in that we consulted with the faculty um, member who led that development of the minor. It, he got it approved by his faculty, and that is um, an opportunity, you know, for for students. We have a um, resilience badge uh, that students um, can uh, earn. It's a it's it covers um, five or six modules, and it, originally it was all in person, and in uh, twenty. 18, 2019, we received, we received funding to digitize the badge so that students could access it 24 seven. And so we worked with a, a, an educational design firm uh, to make it more interactive and interesting you know, for students. Um, and when we did the pilot uh, for this digital badge um, about you know, a year and a half ago, uh, it lived on our um, Blackboard site, and so students accessed it there. 
It's non-credit, it's not for any academic credit, it's free. Um, and so, you know, we advertised the, the digital badge, you know, for students to get into it. And, and, and so we had a really good group of students in the pilot. What we discovered was that employees signed up and were taking the badge as well. And uh, we weren't marketing to the employees. And that was an interesting lesson, too, in terms of an offering at Mason that we really didn't um, kind of think more broadly around the employees. Uh, so um, a colleague of mine in the center uh, collaborated with our human resources office, or office and they were able to uh, come up with a policy that if an employee completed that resilience badge, they would get eight hours back in their uh, annual leave accounts. Uh, so it wow. now kind of that's a good example of a program that also then um, morphed into an opportunity for employees that now is also built into an HR uh, policy. And so, um, so we have a number of those kinds of examples. Uh, and then I guess the last thing I'll say in terms of um, programs, it, there are so many, I really can't mention all of them and they're all on our website and, and your audience can uh, go up to our website and see them and there's free things that they can download and so forth. Um, but one of the things that we discovered over time as we were working on this and many um, initiatives were developed across the university, it was kind of hard to you know, kind of connect this all and get students to know where they all lived and so forth. And so we decided to pilot uh, an academic theme around well-being, uh, and we chose the theme of kindness. And we did this, um, we decided on that theme in January of 2020, before the pandemic hit. And now, looking back in the rearview mirror, we see that that was the right theme we had no idea what was around the corner with the pandemic. And so um, we built that plane in flight during COVID. It was all virtual, uh, but we, we um, branded that theme as Mason Chooses Kindness. And so we kind of used that as an opportunity to also um, help students and employees connect the dot with what exists at Mason now, but also with an overarching theme around kindness, meaning also self-compassion, um, compassion towards others, you know, acts of kindness, so that, um, you know, showing people that that is a real strong connection uh, to, to well-being. So, um, so now we have also a number of programs that are specifically around kindness uh, that we do, and we're trying to uh, now make as traditions at Mason for all of our community members, including our alumni. That is amazing, Nance. And what really strikes me is just how wholly integrated uh, all of this work is in a very inter interdisciplinary way across multiple functions within the university and, of course, across multiple majors as well, it sounds like. Um, one particular question I have is around uh, the cross-cultural aspect of what you do. So, um, you know, first of all, there's lots of research that shows um, that racial and ethnic minorities are at high risk of attrition from universities and 
Uh, I teach and Michael teaches at a, um, at a international college where we have lots of international students. And so, you know, I'm curious to see, to learn about, first of all, any kind of editing that has to happen to the the curriculum or the program to take into consideration, cross-cultural considerations um, and keep those in mind as you're working with diverse student populations, but also do you see an impact on retention of particularly high-risk students um, you know, within the, the university system? Great question. And um, I'll, I'll kind of unpack that in various dimensions. Uh, when we, you know, when we started out, um, we uh, were marketing and, and communicating and disseminating information around well-being in a very general way for faculty, staff, and, and students. And, you know, and by the way, when we got into the university strategic plan, um, the, the president came back to our group and said, now you have, now that you're in the plan, you have to define well-being, you know, for the university, which we did, which is building a life of vitality, purpose, uh, resilience, and engagement. That's our definition of well-being. And uh, when we um, agreed upon that definition, we thought, well, this will really touch upon that definition in those four constructs will really touch upon um, you know, international uh, students, uh, it'll have cultural impact, um, students of color. And um, so we kind of thought, okay, that is broad enough that everyone could see themselves fitting into those dimensions of what we mean by well-being and having a life, living a life well-lived. Well, we were actually wrong about that. Um, I mean, we still have the definition. I think the definition is relevant. But where I think we um, got something wrong was when we uh, talked about well-being and designed these programs just in a very general way, um, we really didn't look and drill down at the intersectionality of well-being and race and ethnicity and so forth. And what we discovered, um, you know, shortly into our um, work at, at Mason with this, you know, emphasis and university commitment on well-being is that in particular, our students of color um, kind of looked at it and said, you know, this is for rich white people who can afford gym memberships and yoga studios. So when we heard that feedback, what we did was um, tried harder you know, to market um, our program specifically for students of color. Well, that didn't work. So um, we uh, brought expertise at the university around diversity and inclusion, which also is one of our strategic priorities in the 10-year plan. And um, we hosted a uh, well-being summit using an appreciative inquiry approach. And we put the entire university system in the room for a day to dream about what this would look like if um, we worked at the intersections of well-being and inclusivity, including, you know, cultural considerations, race, ethnicity, and so forth. And um, 
it was a really exciting day. We did that in April of 2018. A number of um, ideas came out of that, including a required course on inclusive well-being, uh, which is uh, being uh, worked on um, at the university. It's not solidified at this time. Um, we also uh, realized that we needed to design programs specifically for students of color and international audiences and led by those who look like them. And so um, we created a year-long uh, theme uh, for students of color and well-being um, during COVID. It was called We the People. And uh, we had a lot of interest from students there, uh, although it was very challenging you know, in a virtual environment. Uh, and then this past uh, October, we had um, uh, Wellbeing BIPOC Month, and all of the sessions there, uh, workshops for students and employees were led by um, facilitators of color and uh, provided opportunities to explore various things like, you know, the, um, the mental health stigma around, you know, our students of color and how can we, you know, kind of work through that um, and so forth. And so, so that is a big lesson learned. Um, and we're continuing to uh, broaden and deepen those opportunities for our diverse audiences, because Mason is always mentioned as one of the mo most uh, diverse universities among our um, student population in our country. And so I think it's really important for us working in the areas of well-being to tailor specifically for our students, um, our BIPOC students. This is great how you've been able to pivot. I also teach entrepreneurship and innovation. If you look at this initiative like a business, the fact that you said, this isn't working and we need to try this and that pivot didn't work, let's keep trying. I, I love the fact that you're willing to adapt. On that same theme, you've been doing this for years now. Have you noticed any unexpected positive impacts that came out and you were like, that's great. We weren't shooting for that, but any unexpected good things come out during, during all these initiatives? Yes. You know, I, I, I honestly wasn't sure um, how this would resonate with our faculty. And um when we, for example, when the university um, solidified its 10-year um, plan, the, the president went around to all the academic colleges and did an open forum on explaining the plan and so forth. And he took me to a couple of those, you know, by design, just to kind of be there in case, you know, there were some questions that uh, around well-being that um, needed to go toward me. And I uh, walked into one of the, the, the academic colleges um, where we had this open forum that I knew was going to be the toughest audience. And there was a colleague of mine there who um, is uh, kind of like picks apart everything, if, if you will. And um, so she raised her hand uh, during the Q&A session as after the president explained uh, the strategic plan. And, and I thought, okay, here it goes. Um, she stood up and said, I am thrilled that you have a focus in here on well-being for 
our community because, you know, our faculty really need it, um, given, you know, the stressors that are coming at them all the time, the, you know, the workload issues, um, more demands without additional resources being placed on the faculty. And so that was a pleasant surprise. Now that was, I'm giving you one example, but um, it, I gave you the example too about the resilience badge and employees signing up for that without us, you know, marketing it to them. And so I would say that was a that was a pleasant surprise. The second thing I would say it was a surprise too is when we changed over. Basically, a new administration took place at Mason, um, you know, two or three years ago, uh, and the, the president left uh, where we had this, you know, situated into the strategic plan during his tenure. Um, this new administration is one hundred percent behind well-being. So it didn't die after the former president left. It is actually got um, kind of even elevated more so um, over time. And it has um, proven staying power with this new administration. And honestly, that was a big surprise to me as well. And people were, you know, when our president left, people said, gosh, what's going to happen to well-being at Mason? And I'm pleased to say that it's um, supported by our president, by our provost, um, by our vice president for student affairs, uh, various deans across the university. And, and so, um, so I'm honored, you know, that, that new leadership came in and saw this as something that, you know, they valued as well. That's amazing. So for those people around who might be listening who say, oh, I don't have that kind of support. Like, I'd love to have that kind of support. I'd love this to be part of our, our culture. I'd love for it to be integrated in everything we do, but it's not. Any words of advice or any suggestions around, you know, how could people really start to have more well-being at work specifically, but just in general too? Sure. Well, you know, I think, um, you know, we were, we've just, we were just talking about this and a colleague of mine mentioned something which, you know, I thought really was um, really important to keep in mind um, about, you know, leaders emphasizing the self-care imperative. And, you know, it's, it's a small thing for a manager or a supervisor to do, and it doesn't cost a lot of money, but it, it really means you know, operationalizing that value. And then also for leaders and managers and supervisors to walk their talk around a self-care imperative. Um, that's a little bit of a Band-Aid approach, you know, because, um, you know, it's, it's really important to, to create and sustain conditions in workplaces and in, you know, educational its settings and classrooms and outside the classrooms and so forth, where everyone can thrive, uh, where their well-being is uplifted, um, and you know that's that is a that is a complex um, you know endeavor to be able to do that and do it well. But there are, in the absence of that kind of support, there are things that people can do in their local levels. So whether that's in their organization, in their workplace, in their classroom, 
that often doesn't cost a lot of money, but might cost a little bit of time. And also to be able to have conversations with one another um, around checking in to see how we're really doing um, because there's so much happening in our worlds today um, that that really impact our mental health. Um, and we bring that into our workplaces. We bring our whole selves into our classrooms. And so I think it's really important that we get comfortable with language around showing compassion to others, um, which just just having people know, um, that they're being supported in their well-being um, is just as important as have, having some of these things in place. Yeah, that's awesome. And th- this is great. And we're, we're coming to the close of our time here. And are there any final thoughts that you'd like to end the interview on that you think people should hear? Well, I do think, um, you know, I think we hear you know, quite a bit about, you know, there's a, a mental health crisis in our country, and I'd say, you know, by extension, our world. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, one thing that all of us can do individually um, to just chip away a little bit at that mental health crisis is to be kind to one another, to be kind to ourselves to not be so hard on ourselves and to show more self-compassion and compassion to others. And to me, I think that's the most important uh, aspect of, of this work. I think that's a great final thought. And, and I love my evidence-based research and evidence-based research supports you that the best way to get a quick mood boost is to do a kindness for another person. So as we close out, Every day, think of something kind you could do for someone in your own way would be a great way to start. Nance, thank you so much for your time today. And we look forward to future interviews. My pleasure, Michael. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.